verse 9. It's an interesting little phrase, isn't it? Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Now, as uh, as I said, this is our second week in uh, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is very practically teaching his followers how to enjoy the privilege of prayer. And Jesus is therefore lovingly leading us. He's, just in base terms, he's, he's showing us what to do. Which in itself is an utterly remarkable thing, isn't it? When you think about who he is. Jesus, the, the promised, long-awaited, uh, anointed king over all creation, the prophesied son of God who blazed into history. This is God in human flesh who's come to rescue anyone who would trust him and put their faith in him as Lord and Saviour. He's unquestionably the most influential figure of all history and he speaks to us today (coughs) through his word, the Bible, and this is what he says. He says, this then is how you should pray. Despite all that immense power, despite all that authority that he has, which he will show, if you read through Matthew's Gospel, innumerable times, despite all of that, he isn't removed and distant, is he, at all? He loves us so dearly that he will show us how to pray. How we, created beings, can speak to the Creator God. How that we can come before him and and worship him and praise him, give him all the glory that he deserves. Just chew on that for a moment before we look in more detail at the content. Because this is so amazing, isn't it? This is so practical that Jesus would teach us this. And notice the gentleness and also the practicality of what, of what he says. He doesn't specify a, a, a certain place that you must go to, a temple or a church building. He, doesn't, he does suggest, actually, if you just flip back to the previous verses, find a quiet place in your private prayer. Don't pray like the hypocrites on show, like trying to give you the glory. No, don't do that. That's really helpful, isn't it? That's really practical of Jesus. No, he, he doesn't specify a building or a posture. No specific number of times is mentioned that you ought to pray per day. There is great freedom in what Jesus is teaching here. And he's not teaching dull duty. He's instructing us as followers of Jesus Christ in the privilege of joyful, worshipping prayer. Communication with our loving Heavenly Father. So Jesus' teaching here is not limiting. Rather, it ought to be seen as liberating. It is a divine outline of prayer. Now, I mentioned last week, I was reading some studies on prayer. Uh, Apparently, over half the population of our country pray. I'm not sure what they pray to or who they pray to, but whoever you are, wherever you are, for a moment consider that Jesus may have, given who he is, better understanding of how you ought to pray. He may just have more wisdom on the subject than you do. But obviously it takes a bit of humility to acknowledge that, doesn't it? I don't know if you've... uh, Do you know Jay Leno is the American talk show host? I don't actually watch his programmes, but there's one programme which is on, I think it's like Discovery Channel, I think Barnaby was watching it the other day, and uh, he's a massive car collector, I don't know if you know that, and obviously car, they kind of fascinate me a little bit. There he was... He was introducing some of his cars, and he got to this really beautiful old 1960s Mercedes limousine. It's called a Mercedes 600. It's a fabulous car. It was a 
a favourite amongst Cold War dictators and Bond villains, so, so you might know it from that uh, particularly. But Jay Leno, he, he knows so much about cars. He's restored hundreds, literally hundreds of cars. And yet he got to this car. Practically he's always done it, but this car he goes, no. Uh, he needed to seek wisdom from someone else. It's got some very complicated bits in the car, which were kind of revolutionary at the time. It would seem normal now, but he, he just said, no, I need to find wisdom elsewhere. And he did. He went and found a man who built them originally in Germany and brought him over, and he restored the car to its former glory. See, Jay Leno knew that left to his own devices, he would get things wrong. He humbly sought the wisdom of someone else who would know better. And Jesus says, Jesus, think about who he is. He says, this then is how you should pray. I guess the question is, are you humble enough to listen? Have you ever been doing something for a while and uh, you thought you were doing okay? And then someone pointed out to you, maybe a spouse or, you know, maybe, maybe someone at work just said, no, you're doing, you've been doing it all wrong. Everything is wrong. It's hard to accept when someone points out, you know, your inabilities or your lack of mastery on something. Yes, it happens to me quite a lot. But let me give you one little example. Um, I went a few years ago to a doctor, and it was about feet. And uh, he made me walk 10 paces up a corridor and then 10 paces back. We walked back into his office, and he said, I think you probably have this pain, and this pain, and this pain, and this pain. And I went, yeah, 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 and yeah. He nailed absolutely everything. And then he said to me, you're rubbish at walking. You can't do it. Well, that's what I at least heard. Okay, he probably had a better bedside manner than that, but that's what I heard. It was really humbling. I remember later that day going to a cafe and just thinking, well, if I can't do this fundamental thing of life that I can walk, perhaps I can't eat, I can't drink, what, what am I doing wrong? Anyway, if I can't think and do things like that, those fundamental things of life, where do I turn? I need to turn to wisdom. The doctor, and he helped and if prayer is a fundamental to our faith, and it is, it is the means that God has afforded for us to come before him, to worship him, to enjoy relationship with him. Surely we need to turn to someone who knows better, who is wise in these matters. Because we get it wrong, and we need the advice of the expert. We need the humility to hear how we are to pray. Now, we saw last week, didn't we, in those three beginning petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Just cast your eyes down on them again, and you'll see there were three petitions that bring glory to God. You'll see them there in verse 9 and verse 10. The prayer begins with a humble acknowledgement, our Father in heaven. Mark helpfully kind of walked us through that in our prayers today. And that acknowledges God's authority, but also his fatherly care. Much more. Listen to the talk from last week and you'll get that. The, the three press then bring him the glory that he deserves. And they focused around three areas, didn't they? His name, his kingdom, and his will. Now, even the order of this prayer, as we pointed out at the beginning of last week, the order of these requests will have, I guess, reorientated many of our prayers. <coughs> So often I begin, and I admit it, and I guess you do too, you begin with yourself, you middle with yourself, and you kind of end with yourself. It's all about you in prayer. But this is not the way that Jesus teaches us. If we're humble enough to listen to the master craftsman of prayer, prayer begins with God. With him taking the glory he deserves regarding his name, his kingdom, 
and his will. There were three petitions to begin uh, to glorify God and they're followed by three requests that focus much more on our welfare. And that's what we're going to spend our time on today. Uh, You see on your outlines there, three petitions for our welfare. Now there's one thing, I I think, general point I want to make before we dive into each of those separately. Uh, And that is, have you noticed how these petitions that come up now are completely comprehensive? They cover every area of life. I mean, look down at Jesus' teaching it. And as you do, you must recognize that none of us can say, oh, this doesn't apply to me. Look at it. These requests cover the big and the small things of life. The inward and the outward things. (coughs) Everything is covered, but maybe not in the way that you might want or expect. But they are covered. If you struggle with prayer, I guess most of us have. It may be simply because you've not known what to pray. Not knowing the right thing to say can simply stump us, can't we? And we end up being quiet. That happens in a number of social situations too. We need to know what to say. And that is why Jesus here lovingly teaches. He firstly instructs us to pray. The first petition is give us, isn't it? Look at it. Give us today our daily bread. Strangely, the word daily, it's a little aside, but I thought I'd note it. Um, It doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible, this word daily here. And it doesn't appear anywhere else in Greek literature, apparently. If you go to Homer and all those kind of people, it doesn't appear. It's a real oddity as far as, and it's appeared only once in a kind of a papyrus somewhere in ancient history, which we've lost, but we have a record that it appeared there. And it simply seems to be a kind of a shopping list letter, a word. It's all saying, yeah, your daily provisions for tomorrow. I'm going to write something down. It's, it's for that. It's for the food for tomorrow. Now, it's a bit of an aside. But it doesn't really matter how. The basic central teaching here is Jesus praying for our needs. He's encouraging us to turn to God for our daily needs. Not our wants. We have to be clear on that. But our daily needs. We pray for our daily bread. That is necessities. We do not, I love this little phrase, we don't pray for our daily desserts. That is our luxuries. It is for our daily bread. Some even use this, sadly, to suggest that God will, if you pray enough, that he will give you everything that you ever wanted, physically or kind of materially. Any luxury you've ever dreamt about. I know I've been praying for a Porsche 911 for the last 30 years. It's not happened. No, that is a ridiculous application here. We are to pray for our daily necessities, our daily bread. Think what God is encouraging here. This is a wonderful invitation, isn't it, from God to meet us in these very, very small things in life, really. Daily necessities. I don't know about you, but have you ever noticed that you pray so much more when the things get big in life? When big decisions need to be made, when, you know, when you're about to go into something really big or you know, something big is coming your way. We don't need much convincing to pray then, do we? But God is there. God is wanting to engage in relationship with us, to hear us, even in the tiny things. The daily bread, the, the necessities of life. We're to pray, give us today our daily bread. Now, what does this encourage? Three things, very quickly. I think it encourages us to honour God in all of our lives. 
to include him in all of our lives, to give praise to him in every area of our lives, small or big. Secondly, I think it encourages us to be dependent on God, even in the mundane and the trivial as we see them, as well as the big and the life-changing. We're to engage in relationship with God and, and to depend on him, even in the small. Thirdly, I think it encourages us to open up our lives to God so that his name will be hallowed, that his will be done, even in the small things in our lives. Notice it says, give us. It doesn't say, give me my daily bread, does it? Give us our daily bread. That is, we commit ourselves to each other as, as well as to our own needs. We're asking for God to provide for all of us for our daily bread. How extraordinary those necessities of our lives matter to God. Isn't that extraordinary? Amazing he wants to hear our prayers about the food we eat, about the journeys that we go on, about the meetings that we have with just individuals, which just seems so casual and normal to us. The basics of life. Give us today our daily bread. Primarily, of course, this is speaking about our physical needs. But it must point beyond that, as we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, to our spiritual needs. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, we've been looking at this for a number of weeks now. It's uh, Matthew chapter 5 to 7, this great teaching, a sermon from Jesus to his disciples, as you see in chapter 5, verse 1. And Jesus, throughout it, has been pointing beyond now to our eternal security, to our eternal home, to the eternal banquet that awaits us. The kingdom of God is the phrase that's been littered throughout. And it's been secured through and will be through his life, death and resurrection. If you look back in chapter 5 verse 1 through to verse 12, you see those beautiful heart attitudes, the, the be attitudes that were to typify the, the kingdom of God dweller, the Christian. And then those are worked out practically in a number of scenarios, 6, throughout chapter 5. When we get to chapter 6, we've been looking at the acts of our faith, those, the acts of piety, if you like. They're expected in a true believer. And, and the Lord's Prayer sits right in the centre of this teaching as a refining template, if you like, of our prayer, of the true believer, of what their prayer should be like. That is, we're to give glory in all Give God the glory in all things and include God in all things, even in our daily bread. But given the eternal trajectory of the Sermon on the Mount, this petition of daily bread must point us to a spiritual bread. The eternal meal and banquet we will enjoy with Christ, who is, of course, the bread of life, the one who gives life. So we pray, give us today our daily bread. Now, of course, that means physical needs for today, for tomorrow. But it also points to our spiritual needs. We're saying, give us Christ, the bread of eternal life. So he firstly instructs us to pray, give us today our daily bread. Secondly, we see uh, the second petition there is, for our kind of welfare, is forgive us. Look at verse 12 if you can with me. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Go on to verse 14 and 15. There's a kind of an addition here, a, clar a point of clarification. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your, their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. 
Now, I want to say very, very clearly up front, this isn't complicated. But it is very hard. Therefore, often it is said, the Lord's Prayer, unwittingly and without understanding the implications. That's why Augustine, one of the early church fathers, uh, he, he said this, of the Lord's Prayer, of this particular line, this is a terrible petition, he said. And he went on to explain what he meant by that. He said, if we pray this without a forgiving heart, we are actually praying that God will not forgive us. Two things I think I'm going to try and take from this. Forgiveness with regard to others, that's one element. And then forgiveness with regard to God, I think that's the other element we need to look at. And that is why those, verse, those uh, added verses, verses 14 and 15, are so important to see the link between the two. And let's be clear, this is not some kind of isolated teaching of Jesus. Even back in Matthew 5 verse 7, if you want to look back there, you'll see that blessed are the merciful... That beautiful heart attitude of the Christian, the true believer. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The parable of the talents later on in Matthew 18 will teach a very, very similar principle. Jesus is clear. If you are able to forgive others, God will not forgive you. John Wesley once overheard someone saying, Slightly in a kind of begrudging way. I will never forgive. I will never forgive that person. And he replied to the person, I hope you never sin. Jesus' point is clear. If you have an unforgiving heart, essentially your prayers die on your lips and you're simply praying God's judgment over your life. Let me show you how and why. See, the beautiful heart attitude, the beatitude, the, the merciful heart of chapter 5, verse 7, should be apparent in every Christian. If you are a true believer and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection in your place, then that attitude should be in your heart. We've been shown this ultimate mercy as God has passed over us and placed his right judgment on his son and us, but on on his son in our place. Now, if that is true for you and you have trusted, we ought to respond to that undeserved kindness with responding mercy. But if you have no mercy, if you have no forgiveness in your heart, if the, you know, you're not even thinking, I, I just cannot forgive that person. The point is simple. Jesus is saying, you're not a Christian. Mercy and forgiveness are just not in your heart. You're not a Christian. If you still hold grudges with people at work and you're not even seeking to forgive, if you enjoy the family disputes and you just can't let them go, you just want to dig a bit deeper and press a bit harder, if you cannot forgive, please hear the warning. Now, we must be clear, let's have some clarity here, because all of us struggle There'll be those of us here who are wrestling to forgive. Situations are hard. Relationships are difficult. You have been hurt. It is a slow process. You're working to forgive that person in your heart. This isn't about you. Keep praying. If that is you, keep praying that you will, in responding to the mercy that's been offered you through the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be merciful to that person. That you would forgive them because you've firstly been forgiven.
Keep going. Keep praying. If you've been hurt and your blood is, you know, it's just been a recent thing and your blood is still boiling, you know how it is, and you, you know, in your workplace, someone's just been so horrible and you just, you, all you can do is see red, pray. Even if forgiveness seems a, a distant prospect, pray that you will be merciful. Pray that you will forgive. This warning from Jesus is talking about those of us who have no plans to forgive. I have to ask, is that you? Is that you? Charles Spurgeon, local preacher on this passage, simply said, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. And don't try and do the very British thing, especially if you're able and you've been to university and you think, hey, look at me, I can cover up everything. I'm so sophisticated. I'm so savvy in this. Can I just say stop? You're not. And it's really obvious. You may think that your abilities socially will be able to redeem you. It won't. Your anger, because you're, you're boiling about these issues, if you choose not to forgive, will in turn turn in on you. You'll be angry about everyone and everything that comes your way. You'll be offended too easily. Studies have shown that it can very easily lead to things like depression and other emotional strains as well. If you choose not to forgive, it always leads to greater hurt. Greater hurt in you and everyone around you. Oh, of course you'll blame everyone else. It'll also lead to a, a kind of a greater isolation as well. You'll find yourself being on your own more and more and more. Both with those around you and with God. Forgive us our debts, we pray. God, forgive me, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Let me give you the positive, though. Do you realise that when you forgive someone who has hurt you, there is probably never a time where you are more like God, more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he cry out on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To forgive, you see, is to be like Jesus. To not forgive, well, you can work it out. Therefore, two very practical things uh, before we close this point. Um, we're, we're asked to forgive, ask, we, are, we're asked to, we are to ask God to forgive our debts, our sins. We need that to be right with him and he lovingly will respond. Secondly, we are to forgive those who have wronged us. Why? For the sake of your own self? I pointed that out. For the sake of this church, we do not need a bunch of bitter people around. And if that is you, you are making us sick. And thirdly, for the sake of the world, because the person who can forgive is the most wonderfully attractive, promoting gospeling person because they see God in you they see God's mercy and forgiveness in you so question just before we close on this point who do you need to forgive 
who? Parents? Could be a long time ago. Perhaps your spouse, children, your employer, your colleagues, your last church, maybe even individuals or leaders in this church. Lastly, and very quickly, Jesus instructs us to pray, saying, lead us, lead us, look at it, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Just for a moment, uh, it's been quite intense, hasn't it, for the last few minutes. Uh, Just for a moment, think about someone that you know, who you love. One time, uh, you probably knew them as a person who was a Christian, and they were completely going for it, and they seemed to love the Lord Jesus, and they wanted to tell everyone about Jesus. And you probably think of that person as I were, but now, if is that person anywhere near God? I've got so many friends who once were going for it, but now nowhere. They don't want anything to do with God. And, and my question is, what got them to that point? I received an email recently from someone I'd known for years, I prayed with, who I respected hugely as a Christian. An email began saying, uh, they knew that this was going to hurt me, it would be sad. It went on to say they simply couldn't go on anymore being a Christian. They'd made lifestyle choices, relationship choices, which they knew would not honour God, and they wanted no, nothing more to do with God. And in chatting with them, you find out the backstory is complicated, it's sad, and it's littered with a whole number of small decisions. Small movements away from God and his word. Nothing huge, just an extra glance here. More cheeky text there. I guess we all know, we don't need to spell out the reality of temptation, do we? Which is why we need to pray and lead us not into it. Into temptation. Again, two things we we know from our experience, but also from what Jesus is teaching here, to pray. Firstly, I think we've got to just acknowledge none of us, none of us are beyond temptation. And secondly, we all need to know how to pray for protection as well. This is much in need of our li- in our lives as daily bread. I hope you realise that. The quicker we grasp it, the safer we are. The negative, lead us not into temptation, is followed by the positive, deliver us from evil. Let's remember that God, though, can't tempt us. Whether we turn here or James 1 verse 13, it makes it very clear. He can bring us trials, he can test us for refinement purposes, like a father does his his children. But the difficulty we face as we look at the text is that the word for trial and the word for temptation is actually the same word, and therefore we need to work out what the difference is. A trial we can bear. We can resist it, not be overwhelmed by it, come under, or come under its control. And it can come sovereignly from God. Temptation is not from God. It is from the adversary, the deceiver, Satan or the devil. And be clear, he will try to crush us, he will try to control us, break us down bit by bit until we look back and we look at ourselves and we go, I, I don't even know that person. But the interesting thing is God, in his power, his sovereign power, can still use that temptation for our good. Jesus was tempted after all, but he resisted that temptation and his ministry was moulded by that ability to resist temptation. 
And so we are to pray. We're encouraged by Jesus' prayer. Lead us not into that. Are we asking God that no temptation will ever come our way? Can you imagine that day? Or well, one day it will come when we meet him face to face. But for now, that is not a reality in a broken world. We are asking that God will not lead us into, into temptation. Deliver me from being overpowered by it, essentially. That, you know, if it's, think of other kind of instructions in the New Testament. Colossians 3 says that we put it to death, that we flee from it, that we run from it. Lead us not into it. But then he goes on, deliver us from the evil one. I think the simple point I want to make here is, I wish I had a lot more time, is the devil's real. One of my favourite films that is the classic The Usual Suspects. Do you remember that with Kevin Spacey? There's a few smiling faces. It ends with this haunting truism. And it says this, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. If you don't believe that, when you take up, uh, for example, C.S. Lewis, Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, equally haunting and true. He does exist. He really does. The word Satan means adversary. The word devil means deceiver or slanderer. He's not like God, all present, all knowing. He's no match for God. He may not have the little horns and the little fire-branding pitchfork and smelling of sulfur that we see in cartoons, but he is real. He is real. He may use every variety of means bespoke to every culture and individual, but he is real. He is real. He can use governments and businesses, your next-door neighbour, your family, even he can use preachers. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 and 15 says, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants, he's speaking of preachers, also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve, Paul says. The point is, don't believe the lies. The devil is real. And he is powerful. <coughs> we have to acknowledge that as we pray. That's what Jesus is instructing here. But we are also, in a great comforting and loving way, to acknowledge a greater power. The greater power that has bound this evil one, that has brought a final victory. Hence why the Lord's Prayer, I don't know if you've seen that in your sheets, if you just turn to the beginning of your sheets, you'll see the Lord's Prayer printed there, is finished with these words, which don't appear in either Matthew 6 or Luke 11, where it's in the Bible. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen. That's how we finish the Lord's Prayer. They're not in the Bible, but they helpfully summarise who is the ultimate kingly authority in your life, in this world, securing eternity. Who is the one who deserves all the glory? His name is Jesus. Well, I'm going to finish there. I, I wanted to leave some time for questions. I think we have a few moments of questions. 
I guess in these two minutes, my, my main encouragement is, I hope you've been encouraged to pray. And you will humbly and practically listen to Jesus, who says, this then is how you should pray. We're going to ask um, some questions uh, in a moment. Well, you can ask some questions in a moment. But I thought, just because we've gone through the prayer, we're going to pray it again. I think just to helpfully, as you go through it, just think, that's what I need to remember. Maybe use this as a template in your prayers, as Mark helpfully did earlier on, just in small ways. Maybe you could too. Just a moment of quiet. Maybe you want to think of questions, some points of clarification, and then we'll pray, and then we'll see if anyone's got any questions. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.